The following content is not intended as a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. My name is Marina Sprocky Spriggs, and I'm your host of Always Another Way podcast. I have a master's in professional counseling. I'm the Ippy Award-winning author of Stop Looking for a Husband, Find the Love of Your Life, and Nasty Divorce, A Kid's Eye View. I write positive divorce advice for the HuffPost, and I'm trained in clinical hypnosis. And this podcast is for out-of-the-box thinkers. And for those who hear the call of hope, and always another way. And if you're very rigid and set in your beliefs, this is probably not your cup of tea. However, you should note, taste can, and do change. And I am super excited to talk to our guest today. And as you know, if you've listened to the podcast before, I am a voracious reader. I read lots and lots and lots of books. And there are a few of them that I do dog ear like almost every page, and this is one of them. And the book is called Well, What We Need to Talk About When We Talk About Health by Sandro Galea. And I have Dr. Galea here, and I want to tell you a little bit about him. But before we begin, I just want to get you uh, your mind in the right place. So if you think about... Um, healthcare in our country, there's mainly like one emotional topic that people just battle back and forth about. It's the insurance, the Affordable Care Act, and, and all this. But there is much, much more to health that a lot of you I don't think know about or know that it factors in, but indeed uh, makes a point. And this book, uh, I just, I highly recommend it to you just to get this full picture in it. And, um, and one of the things he says in the book that I like, that I am the believer of, one, because always another way, I do like doing things another way and looking things another way, but if you don't start the conversation with something, it really doesn't even begin to allow you to, one, acknowledge that there is a problem or an issue to begin working on changing it. So he's got a lot of research in here that's starting this conversation, and I want to tell you a little bit about him. Sandro Galea is a physician, epidemiologist, and author. He's a dean and Robert A. Knox professor at Boston University School of Public Health. He previously held academic and leadership positions at Columbia University, the University of Michigan, and the New York Academy of Medicine. He's published more than 800 scientific journal articles, 50 chapters, and 18 books. You go. <laughs> he has been invited to present his work in more than 30 countries and 30 U.S. states. Galea holds a medical degree from the University of Toronto, graduate degrees from Harvard University and Columbia University, and an honorary doctorate from the University of Glasgow. Dr. Galea was named one of Time Magazine's Epidemiology Innovators and has been listed as one of the world's most influential scientific minds. He is chair of the Board of Association of Schools and Programs of Public Health and past president of the Society for Epidemiology, Epidemiology, okay, Epidemiology, Research, I messed up that word and of the Interdisciplinary Association for Population Health Science. He's an elected member of the National Academy of Medicine, 
Dr. Galeas received several Lifetime Achievement Awards, and he's a regular contributor to, and his work is regularly featured in, a range of public media. So welcome to the show, Dr. Galea. Thank you for having me. Yes, I am. I'm just so excited to talk about all this um, because this is a, a super important conversation we need to be having in order to, you know, get things going to put all of this stuff in place that makes health. Um, but before we begin, you know, I just want to, you know, because you talk about what really incorporates in this whole book, you know, what we need to talk about health, which is our, which are a bunch of different things. But if we could set the record straight for people listening so they can just kind of listen with an open mind about poverty and people being able to come up or access things, what are the stats on that about people being able to overcome a situation that they had no choice of being born into? Yeah, we um, in this country love the narrative of climbing out of poverty and making it yourself. and. Uh, it is a compelling story. It, uh, it is uh, enshrined in literature and movies. And the story, unfortunately, is increasingly not true. It does not reflect reality. The reality is that for this generation, it is more likely that uh, young people will have less income, will have lower socioeconomic status than their parents than they ever have had before. For a generation 40 years ago, young people were had a 90% chance of actually doing better than their parents. Now young people have a less than 50% chance of doing better than their parents. When you look carefully at the data, the percent of people from poverty who are then going to climb to be in the top 1% is vanishingly small, less than 5%. So the narrative, the myth that the American is going to pull themselves up by the bootstraps and transcend their conditions and make their life better if only they work hard at it, unfortunately, is not reflected by the data. And now you start asking about poverty in the context of a book about health, and I think it's, a, it's actually a very good start to, um, to this conversation because poverty and the lack of resources and the unavailability of access to the conditions that make us healthy is what's at the heart of this book. What, the, what I try to do with the book is to show that your health, my health, is inseparable from the conditions of the world around us, the conditions where we live. And of course, income and poverty influence a lot of those conditions. So when you start thinking that way, when you start realizing that in many respects, being born into poverty means you're consigned almost certainly to a lifetime of poverty, you start realizing that you are now also being born into poor health through no fault of your own. It's not a matter of you didn't work hard enough, it's not a matter of you were lazy, it's simply a matter of, of fact that you had the misfortune of being born to the wrong family and that is going to color your health throughout your life. You know, sometimes I'm asked, what's the one thing I should do to make sure that I'm healthy? And the answer is, you probably will want to make sure you choose to be born to a wealthy family. And when I say that, people typically realize that I'm, uh, I'm sort of half joking because obviously we do not choose who we're born to, but it's entirely true. And the data on how hard it is to change one's own social and economic circumstance are data that are inseparable from the observation that our health is shaped by the world around us, the world we are born into. And as a result, as a consequence, if we want to improve health, we need to improve those worlds. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's so true. And even for just thinking like even more, you know, middle class people, you get 
disease, something else, I have a $12,000 deductible and I had an emergency appendectomy last year and then there's Mm $12,000. And if you don't have that saved and let's say you make $30,000 a year, that is half of your salary. And it's going to continue down a notch. (laughs) The number of medical bankruptcies uh, in this country every year is extraordinary. It's actually quite controversial what the number is, but um, numbers as high as half a million dollars, half a million people a year um, uh, go through bankruptcy because of medical conditions, which when you think about it is remarkable. And we make a mistake when we look at that and, and think it's about something preventable, something people could have done. That is misfortune that could happen to any of us. Like you said, you had an emergency appendectomy and uh, your deductible's gone like that. You, you did nothing to earn an emergency appendectomy, it just happens. And uh, that it reflects how tightly linked our health and our well being are with our social and economic circumstance. And as we kind of dive into this, I'm wondering why some people, you know, and I don't know if I maybe had thought this at one point too, like, well, everybody like, why aren't they doing this? Or they should be doing that. With that is the um, the disconnect. And I know a lot of, because I've had different um, monetary situations in my life. Ne- I never have I been really poor, but I've been, you know, from middle class on, on up and you stay in your circles usually. But why do you think people are so resistant to seeing like when they see people that are poor and they're on, they've got, um, you know, Medicaid or all these other things that it's their fault versus just like, hey, you were lucky you were born to somebody who you have millions of dollars and somebody was not born to that. Yeah, this is uh, why I have a chapter on luck in the book, uh, trying to dispel this myth. We have an abiding fascination with this uh, notion that we all have individual agency that allows us to transcend all our conditions and all our circumstances. And the answer is we do not. We, we, we Our agency is relatively limited and we know this from abundant studies that uh, we change our behavior relatively little. What really changes our behavior is not our volition, it's the world around us. So let me give you an example of that. Let me give you an example from one of the biggest triumphs of health of the past century and that is the drop in mortality death from car accidents. So we, per mile driven, we drive more now, per mile driven, your chances of dying in a car accident is down by about 200 fold from what it was a century ago. Wow. How did we do that? It wasn't because drivers are better. Drivers are not really very good and they weren't very good 100 years ago. It's because of seat belts and airbags and shatterproof glass and making sure that people are not drinking and driving. So. What we were able to do there is change the conditions around us, accepted the fact that we are fallible human beings and drive poorly, made the car and the road and the context in which we drive safer, and that has saved millions of lives. And that is a, that is a metaphor for everything around us, that the notion that you and I can just make ourselves through force of will and change who we are and change our circumstances is simply not borne out by the data. Yeah, and, and you can see the um, addiction crisis that we have, an opioid crisis, clearly proves the point that I don't think anybody chooses to be addicted to anything, that if you ask any addict, if you had a choice to snap your fingers and be out of it, they would all snap. I think that's, that's exactly right. Case. I think the, the, opioid, <laughs> the opioid crisis is a good example of that. The um, Our way out of the opioid crisis is to make sure that uh, treatment and counseling and resources to help people who are dependent on opioids are more widely available than are the opioids themselves. It really is comes at that level of changing the world around us. But when the world around us 
makes opioids readily available, no, no economic opportunity and no treatment available, we are going to develop opioid dependence. And it, it really, the message of the book is that, is to try to help sharpen our thinking that who we are is shaped by the world around us, by all aspects of the world around us, where we live, the air we breathe, the water we drink, the food we eat, our friends, the cities we live in, the rural communities we live in, our economic opportunities we have, whether there's violence where we are, whether there's gender equity, all of these are forces that ultimately shape our health. Absolutely. It is not, we're not here in a vacuum. It's it's super all connected. And, um, and I wonder why, um, you know, people we can, uh, um, empathize with certain individuals because we are indeed all human on this planet and um, why is it easier for some people to put in and you have a good example in your book and it was like um i think it was um with a like with a monarchy uh, um somewhere where somebody there was a guy that was working for them and then his child got sick but then everybody you know away from that kind of insulated until the sickness came to them Mm-hmm. Um, why do we have an inability to empathize with people? And um, so sorry, yes. I'm going circular, but like in, in Dallas, we had the Ebola came in here and everybody freaked out mm-hmm. and started freaking out about people because now it's come to us. But nobody cared when it was over there. Yeah, yeah. This is, and this is why I make a, a call in the book for compassion rather than empathy. And empathy usually is defined as, as I care about the pain you're suffering because I can imagine myself in your shoes. Mm-hmm. And that's all to the good. But the point I make in the book is, we should aspire for more. We should aspire for compassion. Compassion means I should care about how you're doing, not because I can imagine myself in your shoes, but because it's the right thing to do. Yes. Because it appeals to our shared humanity. Even if I cannot imagine what it's like to be in your shoes, it still should matter to me. And compassion then drives action in a totally different way. And you know, I, I use a quote from Martin Luther King, which I'm just going to paraphrase now because I don't remember the exact words, which is that uh, compassion is not giving a beggar a coin but it's asking why he is a beggar to begin with. That's what compassion is. Compassion forces us to say, let us create a world where you and she and him, people who, I I can't really put myself in their shoes for that particular suffering, but where they should be in a condition, in a position to be better, just because that's the right thing by our shared humanity. You know, let's talk about Ebola for a second. Mm -hmm. You mentioned Ebola in Dallas. And uh, you know, we, the reason that why there was Ebola in Dallas is because health systems crumbled in West Africa and countries like Liberia. And we did not have the courage of compassion to care about health systems in Liberia. We did not have the courage of compassion to care about Ebola in Liberia until it came to us. So that's where we saw empathy fail. We could not imagine that coming to us. As a result, we did not care. And we learned our lesson the hard way. And that Ebola was in many respects, an ad for the importance of compassion. Had we had the compassion to say, there should not be Ebola in West Africa, even if I can't imagine it in Dallas, there should not be Ebola in West Africa, and we should help to make sure there's no Ebola in West Africa. That would have prevented Ebola from coming to Dallas. Absolutely. And then even delving further, I keep thinking about that, and I think about like Flint, Michigan, and the water. (laughs) And just, oh my gosh. It's exactly right. And, you know, I, I refer to Flint as a failure of compassion. It's because we, we we did not wrap our brain around the fact that this investment in the water pipes and uh, in the Flint and the Michigan air in Michigan were going to contribute to such uh, consequences and consequences that matter, not just for, for residents of Flint and Michigan, but for all of us. And they should matter for all of us. And compassion would give us that lens. 
Absolutely. And so you have, you know, you've got your chapters sectioned out for, you know, the, di the different topics you're talking about. And, um, and everyone just had just nuggets of awesomeness. Um, and, and just things to, I think, help make some, you know, I think I'm a fairly compassionate person, you know, from the get-go. But just seeing that, wow, like this is, it's all hugely connected. And you use um, Sophia as a person from the beginning of showing how one person who had the unfortunateness of just not being born wealthy and to two parents that had, you know, all this stuff going on, how her whole life trajectory from the time her mother got pregnant changed. And then in the end, if she had been born differently, how her life could be different. Yeah, the, um, you, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll tell the story a little bit backwards uh, just for, this, for your listeners. Imagine, um, imagine you're a physician or a nurse and, um, you are seeing a patient in front of you and um, she's 48 and 40 pounds overweight and uh, because of her added weight and she also has asthma um, she has arthritis in her knees and her knees are really hurting and uh, she needs a new replacement at this point point. and you as the physician look at her as a patient and say well here let me schedule her for a knee replacement now that is a a clinical view at a patient at a point in time what I try to do in the book, to restore of Sophia, is to say, that's not a patient, that's a person. And the person has had a trajectory that has brought her to the place where she is 48, 40 pounds overweight and needing new knees. And what brought her to the place? Well, let's go back, let's go back. She was born to poor parents, through no fault of her own. Parents who loved her, and because they loved her, they tried to give her the best home possible. They were working two jobs. Because they were working two jobs, Sophia was by herself a lot, watching television, eating potato chips. She was already overweight when she left college. She then had a child, developed, um, got more more weight, and but because she actually went to a um, could not go to a full uh, full time college because she had no money in her household, she ended up going to a two year college and ended up working in catering. The example I use in the book in a manual career where she's standing on her feet all day. By the way, she developed asthma because the house in which she grew up in was uh, around a bus depot where there was diesel being spewed into the air at all times. So now she was overweight, had less education than she should have had, ended up doing a manual job, which has her standing on her feet all day. All that weight, standing on her feet all day, brings her to 48, 40 pounds overweight with needs in, uh, knees in need of replacement. That is exactly the kind of story that explains how health in people, in humans like us, is generated over their whole life, rather than seeing people as patients where we intervene with a clinical intervention at one point in time. I love that. Yeah, and that's just that's just so true. It just all comes exactly like that. And then um, and then you have a chapter on fair and justice. Mm. And I think like um, psychologically too, a lot of people really want stuff to be fair. Like that's the that's the argument people get to is this fair, and that's where people get bent a lot. Um, and then some of the argument I've seen from I have a variety of, of friends, but I. You know, you look to the neighbors in Canada and the universal health care and, you know, I just think like, and you just look at anybody, you know, like, why would you not help them, <laughs> you know, if they need something or why should one person get exactly like really good prenatal care? And, and I think the statistics too for women in this country, one of the richest country about um, prenatal death and especially among black women is way worse than poorer countries too. But like why, why we have this disconnect and what do you think the fairness is, you know? Mm -hmm. Or how can people wrap their minds around like it's not unfair? 
Mm. You know, fairness should push us all to think of a world where everybody has equal access to the resources that one works hard for. And uh, that ultimately is an argument for equity. The, the, the classic way to look at this is to say, let's let's go back. Suppose you you were you you have yet to be born, and you don't know which family you're going to be born to, right? Let's say you don't know, and somehow you know before you're born, we can have you, you can have a philosophical conversation. Then we say to you, what kind of world would you like to be born in? Remember, we're not telling you what kind of family you're going to be born to, but we're telling you. What kind of world would you like to be born in? Now, I would argue that if you don't know how, which family you're going to be born to, if you don't know if you're going to be born with any physical or intellectual disabilities, you are going to say, well, I want a world where, which is compassionate, where anybody with ability or with disability is looked after and made sure that they have sufficient stable housing and food and education where yes, there is an opportunity for people who who can and who are willing to put in the effort to excel and to be suitably rewarded, but where it's a world where we create the conditions where everybody can live a full life to their own ability. I would argue that if you do not know what family you're going to be born to and you don't know what ability you're going to have, that's exactly the kind of world that all of us would want to be born in because we're hedging our bets. Yeah. And if you think of it that way, that is what fairness looks like. Fairness should be that world. Because frankly, why is it that we would choose any other world just because now we know that we happen to have been born with particular abilities? That's not fair, right? Yeah. Fairness is saying, what's a world that you and I want to be born to if we do not know what endowments we're going to have? That's fairness. And that's the kind of world we should strive for. I love that, and um, and so even just thinking about that and seeing that and, and striving for that is um, is that compassion of like just seeing like you know a human being that you want them to have, or at least I do, any human being. Just what you said, like the basics, <laughs> food, shelter, and then if we were all educated and had access to education, uh, you know that's where I see the disconnect. It could be just such an amazing place, you know more more of these things it would really be a better world than this competitive like i've got this i don't want you to have it you oh know, absolutely you know. and the uh, the point that i make in the book is uh that these um circumstances of which i speak are they're not elective meaning that we really do not have a choice in creating these kind of conditions if we care about a healthy world mm -hmm. we really do not have a choice if we care about a healthy world that simply putting more money into medicine and curative medicine and, and uh, dealing with illness once it already happens is never going to be sufficient to create the kind of health that we want to create. And the evidence for that is the fact that we are living in a country that spends far more on health than any other country in the world. We spend about 40% more than the next closest competitor. And yet our health is worse than all other high-income countries. And, and that disconnect is extraordinary, actually. It, it, it is a it's an amazing disconnect. Like, how is it, how could it be yeah. that we spend so much on health and get so little out of it? You know, a challenge I would pose is what other sector can you think of where we spend more and get less? Supposing that your smartphone, I told you it costs 40% more than it does in any other high-income country. And by the way, it is much slower than what you get in other places. You wouldn't buy it. You wouldn't buy a smartphone. It would be but unfair. <laughs> in health, in health we accept it. And, and we accept it in health 
because we keep misunderstanding and we keep pumping money into curing our disease when we already have it rather than thinking about what creates disease to begin with so we can stay healthy and that's what creating a fairer world is and this is why health is inseparable from issues of social and economic justice and i worry sometimes that terms like social and economic justice they ring to people as political and i think they are political but I don't think they're partisan. You know, they're not. These are not Democrat or Republican or Green or independent issues. They are simply, they are simply characteristics of an enlightened, pluralistic society. They are features of the world we want to build if we care about health. And the, the, and the poll after poll after poll shows we care about health. You care about health. I care about health. You know, we may disagree on many things. We may disagree on political affiliation. We may disagree on on uh, freedom of the press, we disagree on any number of things. But what none of us disagree with is that we want our children to be healthy. Yeah. So health is a motivator to build the kind of world that we should have. Yeah, totally agree. Like, and that's where the disconnect is. So this is just my own like curious question about people that I find that are extremely compassionate. Did you see a lot of like toxic adult behavior as a child growing up? from other, it doesn't have to be your parents, but just around you. Did you, were you observant to, of that as a child? I, I think what I was very observant of as a child was um, the the differences, the unfairness that goes with, um, with class and socioeconomic position that is unearned. And with how, how frequently people who are, who are born to privilege forget that that was unearned and act as though they had earned it. Now, and I think the mistake happens as follows. I think you're born to privilege, and you know we're all born to some privilege. I want to be clear: born to privilege is not saying us versus them. I think we're all born to some privilege. The mistake is to think that, well, if I'm working hard, therefore I've earned it. Mm -hmm. And the answer is, well, you may still be working hard, but it doesn't mean you've earned all of it. And you know, the, the metaphor, just to use a, a very simple metaphor on this, is like running a baseball diamond, right? If uh, if I'm born on, on first base and you're born on second base, now we may both run really, really hard to get from first base to home, to, to home, right? That doesn't mean we're not running hard, but it also doesn't change the fact that I was born on first base or you're born on second base, somebody else was born on third base. So the two are not inconsistent, but we make that mistake because when we're running towards home base, we think, wow, I'm running, I'm really working hard. I'm running really hard. Therefore, I deserve to get to home plate in this amount of time. Well, yes, you've run really hard, but remember where you started from. So. When I, was, when I was young, I was very conscious of this, very conscious of the privilege in which I was born to and the privilege that other people had, and really determined to make sure that we keep, that I keep that at the forefront of my thinking um, throughout my life, which I think I have done and I think I've tried to transmit to my children. Yeah, very nice. I'm always super curious, like, because I think I was like, I told myself when I was younger and I watched a lot of like toxic behavior from adults that I would remember as an adult that children are smarter than we think and then can tend to know things, I think, at some point, not being tainted by other stuff around, but can see that true stuff about like, notice those incongruencies and unfairness and, and weird behavior that doesn't line up or just knowing that, you know, you can see little kids play and they don't care. They're not asking you your bank account, what color you're, nothing. If you got a smile on your face and you got a toy, you're playing. <laughs> you know, so so kids do that, and and just how we get away from that, at some point, you know, is is interesting. Yeah, it's. A, I think I think we forget. I think we. 
as time passes, we forget. We forget how much of what we have is earned and unearned. We forget how much our environment really matters and how much of that happens to be environment that we happen to look into. You know, let me, let me let's use another another metaphor, and this is something that's used uh, in um, my circles in health. It's the metaphor of the flower pot, and um, you know, you can have you can have flowers and uh, in two different pots, and uh, one flower is blooming and the other flower is not, and uh, you can water both of them. You say, why is one doing it, one not? Well, of course, one of the, the key differences in two flower pots is the soil. It's the soil in which the flowers are. The flowers don't choose the soil they're in, and forces around us, forces, let's say, like racism, which is what that metaphor was uh, um, first introduced for, are like the soil in which we happen to be planted in. We have no choice over that. So we need to remember that. And we need to remember that at a personal level in terms of making sure that we understand how much our good fortune influences our health, but also then at the societal level to say, well, given that we want to build a better, fairer, juster, healthier world, we need to make sure that everybody is planted in, in fertile soil. And that's what we should be looking at. I love that. I love that. And so like kind of almost getting close to wrap up. So for anybody listening and they do want to change this culture around wellness and health and everything that is all connected together, what advice would you give to people listening about how to start conversations elsewhere, open the door, or actually make, you know, start steps of making changes where that we can you know, all become to live in a world where, and like you said, I think if everybody, politics and everything aside, want people to be basically happy, healthy, you know, well-fed, slept well, your, your basic industry stuff. <laughs> yeah, I think um, we, um, all of that is very important. It, it is important to eat right, to exercise, to sleep well. And um, there's a big industry behind that, as you said. What we cannot forget is that um, for most people do not have a choice to choose those things in that you are not going to exercise if you are at risk of being shot when you go outside your door. You're not going to exercise if um, you have no parks around this exercise and you can't afford a gym. You're not going to eat well if the only food you can afford are calorie dense, nutrient poor foods because there are no vegetables for miles around and you don't have a car. You're not going to sleep well if you're living in a drafty, damp, cold apartment. Mm -hmm. So we owe it to all of us as, as people who share a humanity with, with the compassion that should inform what we do to make sure that everybody has the conditions from which they can actually thrive. Unless we make sure those conditions are available, we are going to have large proportions of people in this country who are health have-nots. And there but for the grace of God go us. There but for the grace of God go me and you. And that is what we need to keep in mind. I love that. So anything else that we didn't talk about that you would like to talk about or tell people where they can get your book and everything else? Well, I think my, my book is available on Amazon or many books or in many bookstores. Some, uh, but no, I think you've covered really the um, the key points. And I, I uh, part of the, you know, the book is called Well. And um, the subtitle is What Do You Need to Talk About When You Talk About Health? And it's an intentional subtitle because part of what I'm trying to do is to change what people talk about when we talk about health. And I would like us to, to change it. And I'll, I'll end with a metaphor. I'll end with, a, with a one story, which is, um, I often tell the story of a pet goldfish. Imagine you have a pet goldfish in a bowl and 
you want your goldfish to be healthy, right? So you say to your goldfish, I want you to swim around your bowl 10 times clockwise, 10 times counterclockwise to get exercise. And when I, you give it a little flaky food, you tell it not to eat too much so it doesn't get obese. And when it gets sick, you get it the best possible goldfish doctor. And then one day, you walk into your living room where your goldfish is and your goldfish dies. And you're like, how could it be? It exercised, it ate well, it saw a doctor. And then you realize why? Well, because you forgot to change its water. And it doesn't matter if you exercise, you eat well, you see a doctor. If the water is going to be poisonous, you're not going to survive, you're not going to thrive. And that is the world around us that shapes our health. And once we understand that, we realize that you and I, our health is determined by the city where we live, by the neighborhood where we live, by whether there's violence around us, by whether or not we have access to food, whether or not we have access to economic opportunities and safe, affordable housing, whether or not there is equity that allows us to achieve our potential, all of that ultimately determines our health. And as a result, we as a society need to demand the world that has those features that generates health. I love that. That is a perfect place to end. Well, thank you just so very much for being on the podcast. I just, I just really, I love this book. Well, thank you so much. And uh, for all you listening, you know there is always another way. So get this book, start the conversation, and see if we can change the world. Thank you for having me, Marina. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.